0: And we're going to receive our tithes and offerings here in just a moment. So if you, have a, if you need to take a moment to get that ready, you can do that. Um, while you are, I just want to say how excited I am about this event we have coming up, the Harvest Party on the 31st. That's really very cool. And I think it actually represents um, an understanding of who we are that we share together that's really important. And, and that is that we don't just exist as a church, like for us to come in here and have fun worship services and things like that, but we have this sense that, God has placed us here and brings us together here for the purpose of serving and loving and caring for our community, and that it's important that we take the opportunities to do that. So um, uh, in a few weeks here, we're going to have the community coming to us, and we get to bless them, to show them a good time, to help the kids have a fun, safe, a wonderful experience, and maybe even get to invite them on back to what's going on here, which is really great. But um I wanna say thank you to those of you who have volunteered to be a part of that event, those of you who are gonna be here having fun with the kids and the families who come in, and those of you who are donating tons and tons and even more tons of candy, that's great as well. Um, When we receive our tithes and offerings, when we give, part of what we're doing is saying, I wanna be a part of that. I wanna be a part of reaching out into our community and demonstrating that we're here for you, we love you, we care for you, and we wanna provide some great times for you as well And hopefully invite you to come and and, uh, find the love of the Lord at the same time So with that in view and with that kind of cheerful giving in mind, let's have the ushers come They can receive the tithes and offerings and while they're doing that I get the privilege of introducing our new sermon series that we begin today Called Mirror Mirror and it's from the book of James in the New Testament Which is a great book, um, super practical, um, lots of steps to take Um, The reason that we're going to call it mirror, mirror, it comes out of an image that James uses in the first chapter of his letter. And this is what he says. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Instead, do what it says. Because anyone who listens to the word but doesn't do what it says, that's like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like And we want that idea to seek to sink in Especially over the course of these next five weeks We really believe that God's going to be speaking some things to us from his word And we want to really um, commit up front to saying that as a church we're not, just, we're not going to just listen and hear what God has to say And then walk out of this building and kind of forgot, forget about what went on But we want to take practical steps moving forward based on what God has shown us, I think, I was gonna say, I've got some experience in this walking away from the mirror and forgetting thing. Um, Some of you may know my son, our son, uh, just got engaged to be married, so he's gonna be getting married in spring or summer of next year sometime. Super excited about that. But I discovered there's a rule that I didn't know about. I've been conducting weddings for like 25 years plus, I've never heard of this rule. But now that my son's getting engaged, I learned it. And the rule is this, Apparently, the father of the groom is supposed to be in better shape at the wedding than he was at the engagement. (laughs) This was new to me. But maybe it shouldn't have been because as a part of my daily routine, right, I get up and I see myself in the mirror. And I go, oh, something's got to be done about that. (laughs) Don't, Don't let these vertical stripes deceive you. There is work to be done. And I know it when I look in the mirror. So leave my house, you won't find me anywhere near a mirror. I walk away and like, I look at the mirror and I go, wow, let's do some work. I'm ready to work out. And then the minute I turn away and don't see it, the motivation somehow just evaporates into thin air. Because I've forgotten what I was shown. We don't want that to happen with regard to what God's speaking to us in the course of this series over the next several weeks. We want to make sure that we take practical steps and act on what God is saying, right? So we're going to do a few things. Um, one of the things we're going to do, it's going to be like we're going to encourage everyone in the church to participate in this. We're going to have, uh, as a part of this series soon, we're going to have a, a number of our different partner ministries that we partner with over the course of the year. They're going to be out in the lobby. You're going to have a chance and be encouraged to sign up to serve and to volunteer at one of those ministries as a practical outworking of some of the things that James is going to call us to do in his letter. And we'd love everyone in the church when the time comes to step up and say, I'll take time out of my schedule, take time off of my calendar, and I will serve God by serving with these people. And that's going to be awesome, a very practical, tangible step. There's another thing we're going to do in a couple of weeks. We're going to receive um, a special offering specifically for the ministry partners that we work with which address the very specific, tangible, practical needs that are out there in community. Do you remember last year we did our Be Rich offering? kind of towards the end of the year, and we raised upwards of $20,000 just to bless these different ministries and and, uh, service organizations with the work that they were doing. We want to do something very much like that that says what we're doing here is not just inward in what takes place in church. We want to respond practically and make a difference in the community. So that's coming as well. So we'd love for everyone in the church to participate. Another thing that we're going to be doing to make make sure that we're not just walking away from the mirror of this series and forgetting is... uh, we're gonna, we're gonna be uh, studying in all of our life groups the book of James during these five weeks. Here's how that's gonna go. Each of the five chapters in the book of James are just crammed full of really great stuff. So much stuff, in fact, that you can't fit all of what one chapter has to say in, into one message. Unless you go really, really, really long, and we're probably not going to do that. So here's what we're doing. On the Sundays of during this series, each chapter, the speaker, to the you know, today it's me, the speaker will take the first half of the chapter and address that. And then we're asking the whole congregation, as you gather together in your life groups, to work through and we've prepared curriculum for the second half of the chapter, and you'll be processing that. So if you're in a life group, that's dialed in. It's already going to happen, you don't have to worry about it. If you're not in a life group, but you don't want to miss out on the second half of every chapter in James, you can join one of the James groups that are starting up and meeting on Monday nights for the next several weeks as we go through this series. We want everyone to be a part of that in some way as well. And then I'm going to put my challenge out to you individually during this series. And that is this, I, I can't help but think that over the course of several weeks, God's going to speak some things to you. You're going to hear that nudging in your heart and your spirit that says, I'd like you to take this step in response to that message. And I want to challenge you every time you get a sense of that, to write it down and then to go do it. So that not one time do you walk away from a Sunday morning service and then forget to do what God put on your heart to do. It's too easy for that to happen, right? Last week, Ryan talked about, Conflict and resolving conflict, and how God calls us to be the people who initiate the the resolving of conflict. And I talked to a lot of people. Said, "Oh, I know I've got some work to do. Maybe that was you. I just want to ask, how's that going? Did you did you take that step that God prompted you, or have you walked away from the mirror and forgotten?" Prior to that, we had we did a series on vocation, right, and our calling, and our sense of how God called us to live our life and invested in the work that we do, whether that's in the marketplace or home or or whoever God calls us to be. And many of us said, I've got some work to do there. I need to cultivate a a better attitude towards my work or I've got to work harder and work better or I've got to really seek God and come to some clarity of what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. And we said, we're going to do that. And I'm asking this morning, have you done that? Or have you walked away from the mirror and perhaps forgotten before that, we had a series on the art of worship. Do you remember? We talked quite a bit about um, the life of worship that we live is less and less self-centered and more and more God-centered, whether that's in our corporate worship together or in the way that we live during the week. But many of us came to the cl- conclusion, that, man, when, I co- when it comes to my worship of God, it's got to be less of me and it's got to be more of him. How's that going for you? Have you stepped out, have you gone out, stepped out and taken those steps, or have you possibly Stepped away from the mirror and forgotten. We don't want, as a church, as a congregation, as a church family, we don't want to step away from the mirror in this service. We want to commit that we'll do whatever it is that God puts on our heart to do, and I'm looking forward to that. Now, as far as this morning, we're covering James chapter 1, at least the first half, right? And I'm entitling this message, Embrace the Horror. Doesn't that sound encouraging? Doesn't that have a lot of potential? It's not just that we're heading in on Halloween season when horror seems to be the thing. But in this first chapter of James, one of the things that we're gonna see is, hey, we probably want the life of following Jesus to be easy and comfortable and encouraging and problem-free. Of course we would want that, but the horror that we're gonna have to embrace is that's not exactly the way that it plays out. And that idea quite uh, honestly begins right at the very beginning. Because the Christians that James is writing to in this letter, uh, they understood from their own personal experience that the life of following Jesus wasn't always going to be easy. Here's the first verse where he introduces himself. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Just kind of a standard introduction until you start asking the question, well, what's all this about scattered among the nations? What does that mean? Well, if you recall in the early chapter of the book of Acts, the church was just kind of starting to form. And uh, Stephen was one of the apostles, one of the leaders. And uh, he gave a very public testimony about God's work in his life. And for his trouble, he was put to death. He was the first martyr. And the earliest Christians started figuring out, oh, this bit about following Jesus could be costly. Maybe the life of following Jesus... um, is going to cost us dearly, maybe even our lives. And then it wasn't so much longer um, when, in the year 70 A.D., all of Jerusalem had this cataclysmic event. The uh, general Titus, who would go on to be uh, one of the emperors later on, but he was sent to Jerusalem uh, by Rome, and he, he just he there was a, he laid siege to the city and he conquered it, and uh, and. And as along the way, as a part of that, he absolutely destroyed the majestic temple that was in Jerusalem. And in their rage and in their anger, the Roman soldiers put to death hundreds of thousands, some accounts say millions, of of people because they were angry, because they were mad, because they were simply residents of Jerusalem that they were conquering. And in the midst of all that, there was this rapid exodus from Jerusalem. The people looked around and said, everyone who's staying here is getting killed by the Romans, and so we're leaving. And so these people, Christians, non-Christians, everyone said, we can't stay here, we got to leave. And so they, they scattered. If people had family in other lands, they went there. They just did what they could to get away. And they struggled. Imagine your whole life being uprooted because of these invading armies and the inevitable death. I was like... I was trying to figure out the best way to even kind of communicate and, and get in touch with how distraught um, and how the people were that James was writing to and how difficult their life had become. And as part of my kind of preparation pattern, when I do a message in the week, there's a point at the week where I just like to get a cup of coffee and settle down into the hot tub with the water bubbling and the steam, right? And I see you looking at me about, why are you taking a cup of coffee into the hot tub? Don't judge. (laughs) Don't judge, it's very therapeutic. If you haven't done it, I I recommend trying it. So there I am, I'm sitting there in the hot tub, bubbling water, steam rising, cup of coffee, saying, Lord, help me just connect with the struggles of these people. (laughs) That's how I felt too, I was like, "Uh uh-oh. This doesn't match. How, how am I going to connect with the struggling of these people James is writing to when I'm in the hot tub with my cup of coffee? And I look over and my cup of coffee had gone empty. <laughs> now I'm starting to connect, right? I'm starting to get a sense of what can happen. And that's the moment that my wife, God bless her, I love her, she came in with a full decanter of coffee and said, hey, can I top that off for you? And filled it right back up to the top. I'm telling you what, I am living a charmed existence at that point. It wouldn't really be like an empty cup of coffee in a hot tub, that's not the kind of trials and tribulations we're talking about. We're actually talking more about like, what if a foreign government bombed the western half of the United States and in order to escape radiation and poison and invading armies we all had to like pick up on a moment's notice and move to some place like Iceland or Greenland or something horrible like Oregon or anything like that. <laughs> James is writing to people whose lives have been absolutely uprooted and destroyed, and the horror that he's asking them to embrace is this. He's going to tell them, what you're experiencing, it's not unusual. It's not unexpected, and it's actually part and parcel of how it is that God predictably works. We're going to look this morning at three different horrors that James asks these people to embrace, and the first one is this, that God's toolbox is full of tools like trials and tribulations and hardships and suffering. It's what God uses to get work done. Yes, he also has tools like his mercy and his kindness and his grace and his forgiveness. But, but he also has this toolbox full of the difficulties as well. And if God has a toolbox, it's because he's got a project, right? And did you know this? You are his project. We are his project. What is he trying to accomplish? Here's how Paul uh, described it to the Corinthians. He said, and so we are transfigured much like the Messiah, Our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. God enters our lives and then becoming like him is God's project for us. And this passage of Paul's here in 2 Corinthians sounds great. Oh, I just believe in Jesus and presto, I'm made like Jesus. That would be awesome. But James suggests that's not exactly how it works. James suggests that the making us like Jesus part is a long-term project. And one in which God uses some intimidating tools. This is how James writes it to those struggling people who have been scattered abroad. He says, Count it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and lacking nothing. The trials of many kinds. ...that you're facing, maybe right now... ...they should remind you that God is at work in you. That he's making you more mature. He's making you more more complete. He's making you more like Jesus. See, life happens. Difficulty happens. And when that does, I often find that Christians tend to forget this point. And instead of sometimes saying, I have great joy at the trials God is using to make me more complete... Uh, There's a little more anger than that. And what I hear all too often is, "Uh uh-oh, things are hard, so God must have abandoned me. Or things have become difficult. God must be punishing me. My life isn't comfortable the way I thought it was supposed to be. God, you've betrayed me. And you've felt those feelings, and so have I. We all have. But James tells us that it's just not true. He acknowledges the struggle. He acknowledges the difficulty. He is aware that life is very hard and painful and difficult at some points along the way. But he tells us that when that happens, God's not abandoning us. He's actually investing in us. And that he's not necessarily punishing us. He's actually producing in us a perseverance that is part of his goal. And he's not betraying us. But he's actually walking beside us through those very tribulations that he's using to shape us and it cause us to be more mature and more complete. And so James suggests that rather than fighting it, rather than holding it off, that we embrace the horror. That God's life, that God's work in your life isn't always comfortable, but it's always, always good. What's hard in your life right now? Are you blaming God for it? James suggests that quite possibly you should be thanking God for it. And rejoicing in it because God is producing something great out of it. It's hard to do. But if we'll embrace the horror, we will win the joy. Let's go back to, back to James because there, there are more horrors to pick up on. He says this, in, starting in verse 5. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives gener- generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe, and you must not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, for such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. So I know in my own experience, when I started thinking about trying to figure out what it is that God wants me to do, what direction does he want me to go, what decision does he want me to make? I know that I personally, like, I prefer kind of the burning bush moment, if you know what I mean. In the Old Testament, God spoke to Moses, right? And he, and he spoke to him. There was this burning bush that kept burning. It was unnatural. It was supernatural. And God's audible voice spoke to him out of this burning bush. And so Moses had no question about exactly what to do. And I want God to direct me that way. That clearly. That certainly. That certainly. That, inarguably, right? I would love that. But I find that that's not always the case. And here's the deal. Horror number two. God causes people to walk by faith, not by certainty. God creates these places where we have to exercise faith in him rather than just walking in absolute certainty that we know exactly what he wants. I will say that in my life, there are really only, I would say, three significant decisions that I felt absolutely certain about, like they were no-brainers, and I absolutely knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that they were 100% right. One of them was my decision to follow Jesus. One of them was the decision uh, to marry my wife. The third one is the decision I occasionally face when the waitress asks, do I want extra gravy on the hash browns? And that's a certain yes as well. The other decisions, though most of the decisions we face when we're trying to follow the Lord, they're just not as clear cut. Do you know what I'm talking about? Those times when you go, I want to do the right thing, but I really can't quite tell what the right thing is. I know that wisdom is called for, but I don't know what wisdom is calling for me to do. Maybe your kids have entered kind of like a new phase of development as they've grown up, and they're now starting to think differently, and they're starting to express themselves differently. They're finding new entertainment's fun, they're meeting new kinds of friends, their behavior is tweaking and changing and attitudes are different. They're just in this new season and there's this question like, what do I do about that? There's no easy answer. Maybe you're in that spot where you've got a business opportunity that's right in front of you and on the one hand, this could be the greatest opportunity that you will ever receive and on the other hand, it could be the largest mistake you'll ever make. How do you decide that? Maybe you're a student and you're starting to think about Um, What college should I go to? Or even, should I go to college? Which which career should I pursue? What direction should I point my life? And in all of these cases, what would be super helpful is that burning bush moment of total certainty. But the horror is that God calls us to walk by faith most often rather than in certainty. And he gives us this formula through what James says, and he says, look, in those moments, first stop, ask for wisdom. Acknowledge that you don't have all the answers and, and, uh, and, the, and the direction that you need to go. Acknowledge that you're not up to this decision by yourself. Ask God for wisdom. He'll give it to you. He won't punish you. He won't give you a hard time for not having the wisdom. He says, ask for wisdom. That's one. And then he says, but two, you've got to believe that God's going to give you wisdom. And then three, and this is the hard one, by the way. Like, just ask yourself, okay, if I ask God for wisdom, and then I believe that he gave me wisdom, what would I do? Well, if I believed God had given me wisdom, I would make the best decision I could. Oh, I can't do that. I don't know for certain yet. Exactly. James seems to suggest that the pattern goes like this. Ask God for wisdom. Right? Ask God for wisdom. Believe that he's giving it to you. And then give it your best shot. And this challenges us because this is the one where faith bumps into our need for certainty. Where according to James, we can become unstable in all our ways if we don't really act on the belief that God has given us wisdom. And the reason that we can go ahead and give it our best shot after having asked God for wisdom is this. It's number four. We know that God is at work regardless of the outcome. Right? There are going to times... There are going to be times when we ask God for wisdom, we believe that he's given it to us, and we make, we make the best decision we can, and it works out great. And we're going to go, wow, God, thanks for the wisdom. That was really helpful. There are going to be those other times where we go, God, I need wisdom, and I believe that you've given it to me. And so I make that decision, and the decision tanks. It's painful. It's difficult. And that's when we get to remember, back to horror number one, <laughs> bless you. <laughs> woo Wow. You know, some teachers get an amen, some get a well done. <laughs> there are going to be those times, there are going to be those times when we ask God for wisdom, when we believe that he's given it to us, we make a decision and it turns out poorly. And we're going to have to work forward in, in our understanding from the first tour that that's what God uses to complete us, to mature us, and make us more like Jesus, so in our family life, there was a time uh, back when we, before we moved to Spokane, we were selling our home, and uh, we, uh, the market was tanking badly. We received an offer for our home that we just thought was borderline insulting, and we didn't like it, and we wanted more, and we committed. Rochelle and I that we were going to go to sleep that night and pray and ask God to guide us, and we both woke up feeling like, no, you should go ahead and take that offer, and so we did. We took the offer, and 18 months later, when we went back to visit Uh, family and friends down in that old neighborhood, all the homes that had been on the market at the time were still on the market at the time. Nothing had moved except for the home that God blessed us by getting sold, right? We believed God for wisdom. We acted on it. It turned out really well. I can tell you another story of a time when we had an investment opportunity and we sought God's wisdom and we believed that he gave it to us and we moved some money from here to there to take advantage of this opportunity and it just crashed right underneath us. Complete flop left us in a very difficult and painful place that way. It's not that God didn't come through. It's that God wanted to walk us through a very difficult, painful place so that we could grow up, so we could be more complete, more mature, and more like Christ. If you're willing to ask God for wisdom and then believe that he gives it to you and act in good faith, then you can walk in the confidence that God has got it covered. God is at work no matter how that situation turns out. Christians can expect, James suggests, that as they follow Jesus, life's going to be hard, not because it accidentally got hard, but because that's how God intends it. That's how he works in their life. Additionally, Christians, James seems to suggest, are going to come to these times where a decision is called for and they don't know what to do. And although God could, he chooses not to show them all of everything and how it should play out. He asks them to walk in faith and give it their best shot. And then there's this from this section in James as well. James writes that when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me, for God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is uh, ready, gives birth to death. See, James understands something about the periods of tribulation And trial and also confusion He understands that both of these seasons Tend to be accompanied by increased temptation as well If you're in a season of sustained difficulty or pain Expect greater temptation If you're in a sustained season of kind of confusion And not certain what to do Expect those to be times when the enemy is going to come And tempt you more than usual And we all, you know which areas you're most prone to temptation, right? You know that when the time comes You know where you will be tempted Expect it Expect the temptation prepare for it be ready for it. You can count on it. And this actually though is what brings us to horror number three Which is this God expects his people to resist temptation Even when they're tired and confused Even when I'm tired even when I sustained a long season even when I don't know what to do God still expects me to resist temptation and live a life that pleases him. And I know the kind of excuses I make for myself when I'm tired and weary and confused. I you know I, I will tell myself it's not that big a deal, or it's just gonna be maybe just this one time, or surely God doesn't expect me to resist all of that temptation when he's allowed all this other stuff into my life as well. And and what's in common with all of those is that they, they tend to assume that sin this tendency that we all have to do what we're not supposed to do it's a problem from the outside like it assumes that sin is something that kind of sneaks up on me from the outside and works its way in but James says this is decidedly not the case temptation may come at me from the outside opportunity to sin may come from the outside but James suggests it's my own sinful nature on the inside that is the real and the deepest problem in all of this in other words When we sin, God's not responsible for sinning, our sinning, and sin is not something that sneaks up on us from the outside. What happens is what James calls our own evil desires. The evil desires that are located on the inside, not on the outside, that's what gains traction, gains momentum, and becomes sin. There's something inside each one of us that is enticed by doing what is not good, what is not pure, what is not allowed, and what doesn't please God. And here's what I want us to catch real easily, or we could overlook easily, but I want to make sure that we catch, and it's this. James is writing to Christians. You know, he's not he's not writing to those horrible evil people out there. Of course they have a problem with sin. We follow Jesus. We don't struggle at all. That's not what James is saying. He's writing to believers and saying, you have evil desires that tend to rise up in you. They draw you to sin, especially when you're stressed, especially when life is hard, and especially maybe when you're a little disoriented and confused about what's going on. And here's the thing. Once we recognize that the problem is within, that the problem is our own evil desires, We're able to deal with one of the great traps that's out there, and the trap is this. Most often, we feel like the way to overcome sin is to just try harder. I know I tend to do that. I know that's my Achilles heel, the Achilles heel of my moral life. I know this is where I fall in sin, but I'm just going to try harder. I'll I'll just try harder. I'll join 37 accountability groups. I'll have 500 people a day asking me how I'm doing on this, and I'll just make it almost impossible to actually sin that way, and then I'll be fine because I'm trying so hard. And sometimes those things are necessary, and sometimes they're helpful, but James makes it clear that the real issue is the one that's on the inside, that bent sense of who I am that is drawn towards what is not right once we understand that, it's not that we don't have to try at all, but we recognize that, that victory, that victory in the moral life doesn't come from any external effort or trying harder. Victory can only come when somebody or something changes who I am on the inside. And if the course of human history proves anything to us, it shows that none of us are capable of transforming ourselves to that extent. We can't do it. That's exactly the problem. There's actually only been one person in recorded history who was tempted in all the ways that you and I are and yet still emerged unscathed. And that was Jesus, the one who came and lived out moral perfection and then said, by the way, for those of you that didn't live out moral perfection, I'm willing to pay the price for that. And he did on the cross. But beyond just like, Bearing our punishment for us, which is a huge part of it. He also said, there's more. I want to do more, he says, than just pay your price for you. He said, I want to change you. I want to make it possible for the spirit of God himself to come into your life, to dwell in your heart. And begin the process, not just of giving you more willpower, but of changing your heart. Changing it from a heart that's ruled by sin. To a heart that's more and more ruled by God's will. Give you a mind that's less and less ruled by the thinking of this world. And more and more in line with the truth of who God is. And by his grace and in his love he says I'm not going to. That process isn't going to happen all at once. It's not going to happen just in a moment. It's going to be the work of a lifetime. But he also promises ahead to an eternity. Where we will be transformed. And we will be changed. And we'll be unmarred by that sin nature. And that's going to be fantastic. I suspect that I'm looking out over a room full of people who at one time or another have said, I'll try harder. I'll get better. I'll stop doing that. I'll start doing this. I just got to give it a bigger effort. And this morning I want to suggest, from what James describes about sin, that all the effort and the best effort in the world isn't going to do what only the Spirit of God can do, which is to transform a heart that's broken. And so I want to invite you to pray with me as I pray for you. For some of you, this may be a prayer that you've repeated dozens of times throughout your life. For others of you, maybe this is the first time. In either case, this can be a powerful moment when we give up on the gospel of human effort and we engage and embrace the gospel of God's grace. That simply because he loves us, he's willing to change us from the inside out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful for the gift of your son. So grateful for the life that he lived in all of its perfection, in all of its sinlessness, in all of its purity. God, for all of us, I would would just say we're grateful as well that in that perfection, Jesus gave himself to die on the cross. As a punishment, not for his sins or his wrongdoings, but as, a, as the right punishment for all the places that we fail on a regular basis. Thank you, God, that you have made forgiveness available through what Christ did. And in response to that, God, there's really only one reasonable thing to do. And we want to do that in prayer today. And that's to recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. That what he did on the cross can be effective in my life. The part of making that happen is just to acknowledge, God, I am a sinner. I fail regularly. Sometimes I fail because I can't help myself. Other times I fail because I just want to. And whether it's accidental or brazen, that sin displeases you. God, I'm, we, we understand... There, there's a level of guilt that's associated with all of the places that we violate your will. And simply because your word tells us to, we come and ask in faith, believing that you will. God, would you forgive us for that? Do you help our lives not to be stained with the guilt of that sin? Would you set us free from, the, from that? We don't come asking because we deserve it. We just come asking because you said it's available and we... Believe that it's true. And similarly, God, we want to ask, even as we do that, we want to invite your Holy Spirit into our heart. We want to invite you to do what it is you do when you take up residence within us, which is to begin that process of restoring our soul, of changing us from people who are ruled by ourselves by people who are just led peacefully by you, God, would you trans- transform the way we think? Would you transform the way that we feel? Would you transform the way we believe and the way that we act and all of those things? And God, would you leave us, lead us faithfully into a future of hope, future promise, of eternity with you as well. And we believe that you do all those things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, Pastor Scott. Um, I'll be thinking more for myself of how to embrace difficulty and pray for wisdom and just be transformed by Christ. So we are going to continue this series on Mirror Mirror. So bring someone with you next week to join us. It's going to be awesome. And if you are newer to the church, I would love to meet you and get you better connected here. So I'll be hosting a brief meeting called First Connect underneath that monitor. And if you'd like prayer, our prayer team will be over here underneath this monitor. So have a blessed week, everybody. See you next time.